This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Okay, so we've finished Isaiah, which was kind of had some strong points and some challenging points. Through the summer, we're going to do uh, the parables of Jesus, that different people can preach on the parables. Um, But I just want you to think about the parables in terms of they're not little Sunday school stories. You know, they're not in the Bible because, oh my word, Jesus is thinking, what are they going to do in Sunday school for the next 2,000 years? You know, if there's no parables, you know, we, how can we, if there's no donkeys we can cut out, you know, if there's no five loaves and fish, you know, whatever. It's gonna, and they're not little Aesop's fables, you know, Aesop's fables that are kind of like these little moral stories, you know, little stories of animals and stuff that with, with a nice little moral. In fact, there are lots of things. They're, they're profound truth, but, but probably because of my politics, and don't get too scared, uh, but actually I think they're radical insights into the nature and the transforming power of Jesus' coming kingdom. So for some, the parables of Jesus seemed really, really subversive. And for others, they seemed like incredibly good news at the same time. And, and, and so I thought, well, we haven't got the artwork. The guy's on holiday, so I, this is my attempt at the artwork. But I think, I, I don't know if you like Banksy. You know, but, but here's, this, this, the picture on, on your left was a, uh, actually on a wall in, in, in Gaza, and it shows a terrorist throwing flowers. That is a revolutionary way to think about things. Uh, the other one is, uh, was on a wall in London. They're just like it. You know, it's a kind of sense of dreams and hopes disappearing. But... But I feel almost like the Jesus' parables almost like these Banksies, that he's just suddenly they appear, and you think, who is this guy? What does he, what's the meaning of this? And, and, and I want us, as we go through the parables, to think about that. So David Wenham, and so this is not my idea, I haven't thought, oh, let's make it about revolution. He says this, David Wenham, in his book, The Parables of Jesus, he says, Jesus was announcing the coming of God's revolution and of God's new world. This revolution, by the way, is not some chaotic Marxist thing that ends up with everybody you know, starving and killing each other in some Stalinist kind of world. This is saying there's a world order that needs to be turned. Uh, and, and as promised in the New Testament, God was at last intervening. We've spoke about that last week from Isaiah. Jesus' parables are revolutionary stories declaring the end of the old order and establishing of God's reign over everything. Yes, please. A kingdom rule that will bring salvation to his people and renewal and reconciliation to the world. So these parables are like are meant to challenge and encourage, depending on where you stand in this story. And I'm going to start with one of the, uh, the most common. So we're going to look at Luke 10, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, again, that's a, a bit of graffiti from uh, Palestine. And I want to title it, revolutionary neighbours, revolutionary neighbours. So I don't know if you uh, have ever visited a place that's been divided, so I've, I, I have the privilege of being going back and forth to Belfast at the moment, 
uh, and if you drive around Belfast, you can't see it so much now, but when I first went some years ago, you could see what were called the peace lines. You could see these nice rows of very kind of seemingly unspectacular Victorian terraced houses, and then just dividing the road, almost like they built this massive wall. They called them peace lines, but they didn't look anything like peace at all. Or if you've ever anybody been to Berlin, obviously you go to Berlin and you look at the wall like a tourist and there's less and less of it, but there there was a sense of here's this wall that, that, that divided. And, and, and you know, I've not been, I've been to the West Bank but I haven't been recently, but there's a wall in the West Bank, I think there's a picture of it that we've got that, that divides them, um, you know, and you can see the understanding, the reasons of, yeah, we want to divide because there's, there's, there's us and them, and there's this on that, and then, you know, and, and if you go to Johannesburg, there isn't one big wall, but, but, but all the, the uh, lots of white people live in these massive gated communities, and then you drive kind of 10 minutes down the road, and you get these really broken townships, and, and, and there's something about us, human society that likes us and them. It likes to say me and you. It likes to, to divide into us and them. It likes to exclude those and include us. You know, so again, not being political, but, but kind of let's build a wall and, America, and, and Mexico's going to pay for it. I can understand some of the economic reasons driving that. I'm not saying that Trump has, you know, has missed it completely, but there's something about walls that divide, that are, that are difficult and challenging, you know, and how do you do that? Because there's something that wants to divide, and, and you go to Belfast, it's Protestants divided against Catholics, you go to, you go to Berlin, it was kind of capitalists against Marxists, you go to, um, you go to Johannesburg, it's blacks against whites, you know, there's, a, there's a something about walls that divide, and walls draw boundaries, and I thought about this, and I thought, walls draw boundaries where your responsibility to love stops. So you're a Protestant, and you say, this divides, this community is where I'm going to love, but that community, no. Or even when the extremes of the troubles, that I'm gonna, that's where I'm going to hate. And walls draw boundaries where love stops, and apathy, and contempt, and hatred begin. And these boundaries are not just from the kind of 20th, 21st century. They were alive in Jesus' day. And we're going to look at one of those boundaries and how Jesus confronts that wall in a man's heart. So, familiar story, but hopefully you're already thinking, ah, oh, maybe there's more here than just a few donkeys and uh, a nice visit to the inn. Okay, so Luke 10, 25, it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? The lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. It's funny you thought, actually, you thought Jesus said that, didn't you? He says to the lawyer, says it. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus says, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho when he's attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be coming, uh, going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But... A Samaritan, 
as he travelled, came to where the man was, and when he uh, saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man in his own uh, animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two weeks' wages and gave them to the innkeeper. innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you have. Which of these three do you think was the neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers, Jesus said? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Father, we just pray in this world that so easily divides into others and them, where we put limits on our love and and those limits are always increasingly smaller and smaller. Lord, I thank you in this parable, the way that you blow down the wall of prejudice and encourage us to live as revolutionary neighbours. We pray, stir us by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's interesting, the first thing we get is the lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Immediately there, you've got a bit of hypocrisy, because actually in Middle Eastern culture, um, the book Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes that I've quoted many times by a guy called Ken Bailey helped me with this, so just so you know that I have not really been an expert on Middle Eastern culture at all. Uh, But um, Middle Eastern culture, the teacher sits and the students stand. So if you go to a Jewish synagogue, the guy teaching sits and you all stand which would be quite good, couldn't it? It could stop you falling asleep. <laughs> but but the, so the student humbly stands. And so what happens is, it says the lawyer stood up to put him to the test. He's taking the, the, the position of a student, but underneath what, or behind his back, he's thinking, I'm going to test him. I'm really not a humble learner. I'm really trying to catch Jesus out. And you get this brilliant interaction. Jesus knows he's a lawyer, and it's almost like Jesus thinks, okay, you're a lawyer, let's play lawyers. So the lawyer asks the question, and the natural thing would be, well, Jesus would answer. But the lawyer asks the question, and then what happens is, Jesus asks the lawyer a question. And then the lawyer answers the question, and then Jesus answers that question. And then the lawyer asks the question, and then Jesus tells a story, and then Jesus asks the question, and then the lawyer answers it. So it seems that we've got this kind of almost this interactive way of, of, of doing it, in that it's a little bit of a debate, a little bit of a legal debate. You've got two lawyers Two people that know the law really well uh, going, as it were, head-to-head in a discussion. So the lawyer's first question is a good one, but a flawed one. I might even ask you to turn to your neighbours and say, why is it a good question and why is it flawed? Teacher, has obviously been deceitful because he's not really a learner, but teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Why is that a good question and why is it bad? The most important question is eternity. We, our culture, doesn't make us think about eternity. Our culture makes us think about now and next week. It doesn't, we don't wake up worrying very often about eternity. Unless cancer strikes, you might think, whoa. But most of the time, we don't think about eternity. So it's a great question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. Think about eternity. Jesus is about eternity. He's about now, but he's about eternity. But but why is it a bad question? This is more subtle. Why is it not such a good question? It says a lot about the lawyer's mindset. You can do something. Deeds, it's not like, if you you keep the rules, you get to go to heaven, and if you break the rules, you don't. That's called legalism, isn't it? It's called, you work hard, 
and you be a good person, and then God will let you into heaven, and if you don't, God won't. It's, it's a flawed question, because actually, the word inherit tells you why. What happens to inherit? Inherit, you get, if your family are wealthy, you get a huge amount of cash. But what's going to happen? Somebody's got to die. Somebody's got to die. That's the why, actually, the gospel works. That, that, that an eternal life is a gift from God that you can't earn it. You get it. We're going to break bread later. You get it because he dies. He dies and gives it to you as a gift. It's not an entitlement for good behavior. It flows from relationship. And Jesus is going to talk about relationship. So already Jesus is like, you know, the, the, the question Jesus is, is, the man's already been drawn into, not Jesus' trap, but he's been drawn into the way that Jesus wants to go because Jesus sees his heart. So Jesus asks him a question. And I think it's interesting, he starts with common ground. You see, I would have said, well, that's a really good question and a bad question because of what I've just done. Jesus doesn't do that. It's much, much better. Uh, 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 he starts with something in common. So whereas I've said, okay, bad assumption about legalism, bad assumption. Well, he starts with something in common and he says to him, what's written in the law? You're a lawyer, what's written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer's answer is, again, excellent. In fact, it's incredibly excellent. We think so excellent, we think Jesus said it. He quotes from uh, Deuteronomy 6, which is called the Shema, which Jewish people say every day. It's the thing they have on their, uh, you know, if they're very orthodox, they're having a little box on their heads and, and on, on their doorposts. It's this prayer. Okay, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's a Shema. And then he adds, interestingly, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Can we do the next slide? Because it tells you where they're from. So the first one is from Deuteronomy 6. And most Jews would have said, Yeah, that, that's the basis of our faith. That's the creedal moment. But interesting, he quotes Leviticus 19 that says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting, he, he pulls that out. You think, why does the Samaritan, why does the, the lawyer pull that out? I think he's, he's been listening to Jesus, because Jesus in Luke 6 says, do unto others as you'd have them do. I know that you think that's the basis of humanism, but actually it's Jesus's golden rule. And I think he's, he pulls out those two incredible things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Incredibly profound answer. Jesus says, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. What he's saying is, okay, if you can love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, then you will earn eternal life. There is a way to earn it, by perfectly, perfectly, perfectly keeping the law. But actually, the lawyer knows better than you know, and better than I know, that that's impossible. It's impossible to perfectly love God with every, all of you are. And it's definitely, even your real neighbours, your next door neighbours, you know, when they cut their grass noisily when you're having a, 
glass of gin and tonic. You know, you, you can't love them perfectly, can you? you know, they're annoying, aren't they? You know, love your neighbours yourself. You know, we, don't, we, we struggle even to love, love our families. You know, there's conflict and breakup. We, we know we can't do it. And the lawyer must have known that because I think he, immediately he reflects on, I can't do that. Deuteronomy 27, 26, the language is harsh, but it's in the lang- language of blessing and cursing. It's not like, oh, God curses everyone. It's just saying, this is bad. There's no eternal life. Cursed be everyone who does not live by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Suddenly, the lawyer is on the spot. He's saying to him, okay, Jesus is saying, okay, lawyer, if you want to get eternal life by keeping the rules, that's fine, but you can keep them perfectly. And the lawyer then suddenly feels vulnerable. Just journey with me, okay? Because it does make sense when we get there. Suddenly, who's been tested? Not Jesus, the lawyer's been tested. Luke explains the lawyer's emotions, desiring to justify himself. In other words, he feels like, oh, I'm on the spot here. <laughs> I'm feeling like I'm on the spot. You know, I've said it's about loving God and loving your neighbour perfectly, and I know that I can't. So, okay, let's, let's try and wriggle off the hook. Let's try and draw some limits. And he says, desiring to justify himself means literally makes an excuse. But also, justify yourself means to make yourself right with God. We're suddenly, boom, we're right at the heart of the lawyer's problem, self-justification. To achieve acceptance before God in your own merits. The way we do that is by comparing ourselves with others. Tick. So, my two children are here today, which is helpful for an illustration that I'm just thinking on the fly. For example, if there's jobs to be done around the house, if there's jobs to be done, and they're much better now, they're all grown up, you know, but if there's jobs to be done around the house, the, the, the issue of whether the jobs are done is really secondary to who's done them. So, you know, Damaris, well, Joth hasn't done this, and Jotham, Damaris hasn't done that, and, 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 and the requirement to do the jobs is is, is now changed to finger-pointing about who's done the jobs better or worse. And the truth is, we can do that in church. You know why people hate church? Because the churches can be just like the lawyers. They think the way that you, that you justify yourself, or the way you make yourself feel righteous, is by pointing your finger at somebody else and saying, I'm good and you're not. And immediately a wall's been built. Already a limit to love has been put in place. I'm a righteous one and you're not. Brilliant quote. Dietrich Bonhoeffer always makes you look intelligent, which is not the aim of the exercise, but a nice byproduct. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. It's a vital necessity. I love his urgency here. It's a vital necessity that every Christian community from the very outset face this dangerous enemy squarely and eradicate it. You think, what is it? What is that enemy that's lurking around in the church that we've got to get rid of? There's no time to lose here. Somewhere within it, there will certainly be the struggle of the natural man. What he means is the the fleshly person. The person who's not thinking spiritually. He's not, you know. For self-justification. He finds it only in comparing himself with others, condemning and judging others. Self-justification and judging others go together. 
Justification by grace, in other words, a free gift of God's life because he's died for you. And serving others go together. It's very profound. What I mean, churches eat each other, fight each other, fall out with each other, point the fingers at each other. I mean, I can do it. Me and Steve Moat, when we're in a bad moment, can say, you know that person? That person turns up for their rotors. They serve and they're very good. And that person never turns up. You know, what are they like? Da, 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 da. I, I'm not having a go, by the way. Are you shocked at that? I do do that. I, I, it's not healthy, I know. But it's like, we, we can do that. We can start to categorize, can't we, in our heads. And you can start to categorize. Oh, I'm, I'm this far up and I'm that far. And that person's on the outside and that person's that. And, and that person, they're, 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 they're socially acceptable to me. And I, I think they're very much in. I'd like to be friends with them. And those people, well, I'm not too sure. I want them in. And we do it straight away. So the lawyer's now on the back foot because he knows that actually self-justification and judging others is his stocking trade. Serving others is not his stocking trade. He says to this, who's my neighbour? Who's my neighbour? That word neighbour could be friend. It's more than just the person that lives next door. It's about who, 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 who is inside my relational family. His question, as I've said before, is where do the limits of love stop? Now you could have expected uh, Jesus to say, okay, it's in the Bible, it's in Deuteronomy, um, it's in De- uh, sorry, Leviticus, do not but revenge, uh, seek revenge or bear a grudge against, read it, but love the neighbours of yourself. So where's, it seems to imply in Leviticus 19 the limits of the love are Sons of your own people, blokes, who were Jews. That pretty much sums up a Jewish kind of thinking at that time. If you were a man and a Jew, you're inside. If you're a woman, you were definitely a little bit further out. And if you're a non-Jew, well, I don't care for you one jot. And you could have expected, he probably expected Jesus to say, well, that's fair enough. And I think we can really do that in church. We can say, what are the limits? Well, it's the people like me. You know, I've said this, the people like me, I want the, the, the sons of my own people. You know, if I'm a bloke, I want the bloke. If, I, if I'm young and trendy, I want young and trendy. If, I, if I'm this, I want this. You know, there's people like me. And prejudice sometimes means we, don't, we have got walls in churches and we don't make friends with people who are not like us. And prejudice was so embraced, embedded in the Jewish tradition that, that you know, like I said, they had no regard for anybody who wasn't Jewish. So the Essenes were a sect around the time of Jesus, where the Red sea, Dead Sea Scrolls, they, said, they wrote this. Jews should hate all the sons of darkness. Their response was to love the, people, the sons of your own people and hate the sons of all darkness. That sounds a bit jihadist to me, doesn't it? Sounds like, whew, you can love them, but you can kill them and that's fine. God's happy with that. But if they'd read on, if the lawyer had read on just a few verses down to Leviticus 39, it says, love the stranger, the foreigner, as yourself, because you were strangers in Egypt. What's the motivation for loving people that are not like you that Jesus says? It's because you were strangers in Egypt. In other words, the gospel where you were in prison and you were a slave and God has set you free 
That's the motivation for loving people that are not inside your dotted lines. That's the motivation. So then Jesus said, well, let me tell you a story, and we're going to find this story is familiar. You think, what, what's all that to do with it? It's all about building it up. Okay, so a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, if you've ever been, Jerusalem's on a high mountain and it's very dry and dusty. It's there because there's one well in the town, very dry and dusty. And then it drops down into the, the, the Judean or the, the Judean Rift Valley. So it's 2,500 foot. It's like coming down the side of a, a large mountain. So you're dropping down, dropping down, dropping down, eventually to below sea level. And Jericho is actually a very fertile place to live. So a man's going on that journey, but it's kind of narrow, rocky road, going down these kind of rift valley steps. And he fell among robbers. It actually was a place where people often got robbed because of the nature of the road, turning and twisting and dark corners. He fell among robbers who stripped him naked, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. It's interesting, isn't it? And I don't want, you know, I don't want to send you too far, but, but the guy is naked. It's difficult to tell a person's religion, socioeconomic group, educational background, career path, university, when they're not wearing any clothes. So I was on the train, I mustn't be, uh, this is not in my, my notes, but I was on the train, <laughs> it's on the tube in London, and it was really quite funny because there were these two chaps and, and, and they were definitely, in my book, they were quite posh. And they were, they, were saying, they were saying to each other really loud on the tube, you know, it's really terrible these days, but they're letting people into Oxford and Cambridge from, from grammar schools and even, even, from, even from comprehensive schools. And it's like the cat, and they say, you know, it's terrible. It, it really, it, you, you, can't even, you can't even get in to Oxford and Cambridge from a good school these days. And they're saying it not like as a quiet conversation, which is their right to say their thing, but it was like the whole carriage. And when they get off the, ca when they got off the, the tube train, it was packed, they all really, really, they, everybody really laughed. And I said, oh, it's so terrible these days, isn't it? You really can't buy a, a good education. And everybody really, really laughed, but you could tell by what they were wearing, and I'm, I'm just nervous. I'm already tre treading on people's political grounds. <laughs> you're thinking, Howard, you're so prejudiced. But you could tell by what they were wearing that, that that's kind of where they were. And the lady opposite me, was, you know, what she was wearing, you could tell from what she was wearing what, what, where she, her socioeconomic background was. You could tell by what I was wearing my socioeconomic background. But whenever... If that offended you, just move on. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a prejudiced person. I just thought it was very funny. Um, and, but, but, you, but once a person's naked, you can't tell. You can't tell as a capitalist or communist, Texan, Mexican, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, Samaritan, you can't tell. You might say, ha-ha, you could tell if they're naked if you look really close if they're a Jew. <laughs> ah, Samaritans were also circumcised, unlucky. You can't tell. You just can't tell. Now, a chance, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and he, when he saw him, the man naked by the side of the road, he passed by on the other side. It's interesting here that the, that the priests are like the top of the, uh, the, top of the hierarchy. They were wealthy, they, they had temple work. Many of them worked in Jerusalem, but had kind of estates down in, in, on the nice fertile ground in, in Jericho, and so they'd, that would be their, 
their weekly commute. They'd go up to work in the temple, and then that would be their weekly commute back down to, uh, to, to Jericho. So he's basically on his, on his way home from work. And he sees a naked man lying by the road. And this is how Jesus is pushing into their presuppositions. The custom, not, not the gods in the Old Testament, but the custom was a priest should help a naked or a person who was a Jew. He should help him. But if he wasn't a Jew, he had no legal responsibility. But the challenge was that if the priest was going to go and check if this person, because it says he's half dead, was alive or dead, Jew or not, the danger was if he touched this body and the body was dead, he'd be ceremonially defiled. In other words, he couldn't do his job. Because you touched a dead body... You either had to go back to Jerusalem for a whole week of ceremonial cleaning of your clothes, or you're supposed to tear your clothes and burn them and get more. And also, for a whole week, he wouldn't be allowed to draw a salary. He couldn't take any tithes if he touched a dead body or somebody who was unclean. So what he's got here, he's got, he's got, sense of, he's got his own well-being, he's got his sense of uh, you know, a tightly drawn boundary, and he looks at this guy and thinks, I'm just going to make an assessment. Jesus doesn't tell us who it was, he's a Jew or gentleman, he just makes an assessment and thinks, it's not really worth the hassle. You know, a week off work, I can't feed my family for a week, I might have to buy a whole new suit, um, he might be dead anyway. If he's a Jew, okay, I'm, well, and he goes on by. I can do that. I can say, this is inconvenient. You know, I'm, on a busy, I'm going to a busy place. I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing the other. I can't do this, I can't meet. And by the way, we're not talking about giving money to street homeless people. That's not the equivalent here. We're talking about people in need, whether physical, spiritually, emotional. It's not like if you see a naked person lying on the street in Cheltenham, this is, we click into gear here. That person stands for anybody who's broken and damaged. I can really walk by. I mean, I don't give money to street beggars, by the way, because there's a whole complicated situation around street beggars. Uh, I think you can chat to them, you can buy them a coffee, but, but street beggars in this country are, are often, well, a, a number of them, and it's, it's not real. And that, Does that sound harsh? They're, they're, they're making lots of money from pretending to look like beggars. Now, you go to another place, you go to India or you go somewhere like that, that's a different uh, situation. But I've never been to India, but I suspect if you walk around the streets in India, there's so much brokenness and poverty, you just think, how am I, I going to move? You know, I stop here, help this one, I stop here, help this one, I stop here, help this one. I, I'm on holiday, I've got a busy program, I've got a... I, I'll just go by. Because the thing about... We don't believe that sin infects us. You know, if we meet and work with somebody who's broken, that sin infects us. But we do, what we do believe is that compassion is inconvenient. You know, if somebody's dirty, it gets on your clothes. If somebody's spiritually dirty, it, 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 it costs you. Somebody's broken and damaged and hurting, and you, you, you get involved, it costs you. The next character... Is a, is a Levite. Levites are further down the religious scale. They're not ceremonially defiled by touching a dead body. They've got no religious requirement to, re, to, to care for a Jew or not. They, this is basically the, the, the church caretaker, and he's just too busy. He's like, I'm busy, I'm busy. 
And he thinks, okay, well, I, my boss has just head off out of work. I had to leave and lock up or whatever. My boss has just headed off and walked on by, clearly. So, I, you know, what's my boss going to think? And, you know, I'm very busy. And so he just walks on by. And this, this guy's walking on by because life's just too busy for him, I suspect. He's walking on by because, well, well, the leader in the church isn't doing it, so I don't need to do it. It's not really what we do. I'll just walk on by. Life's too busy to cross boundaries and to care. And it's interesting, almost Jesus sets up the, the story like a, a bit of a joke, doesn't he? You know, those, those an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman went into a bar, you know, those kind of jokes? You know, uh, or, do you have them in America? What do you use in America? You obviously don't use an English, an Irishman, and a Scotsman. What do you use? A doctor, a lawyer, and a, a, and a Cardinals fan. Is it? <laughs> anyway, whatever. So Jesus has set up this, and you expect... Kind of, what do you expect next? You've had two religious people, who do you expect next? You would kind of expect like a punter who's not on the church staff, who's got a busy life and like is amazing and works with the poor. You kind of expect that. You expect a layman at a dig at the clergy. But actually what Jesus, what comes next is like, boom. Nobody, nobody, nobody listening was going to like think, well, we're going to bring a Samaritan in, into the story. I mean, the words, but a Samaritan... That's huge. I don't know what you'd put there. Who's furthest outside your comfort? What would you put there? Homosexual? No. You know, what, 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 where does our pre, where's our prejudice go? How far does it go? You're already struggling with that. Are you thinking, what was he saying? Listen to my series on sex. This person out there. A jihadist, Islamist. Who's out there? Jesus brings that person in. How do we know that? How do we know that we felt that? Because if you read back just one chapter, you get an idea of what they felt about Samaritans. I'm not going to go into all of that. I've talked about it in other times and other places. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, to, uh, Luke, 20, uh, Luke 9, verse 52. It says, Jesus was set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead, these are his disciples, who went to a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. In other words, he's, he needs to stay over at the Premier Inn or whatever he stays in. He said, but the people did not welcome him. This is a Samaritan village because he was going to Jerusalem. In other words, the Samaritans are just as bad. Were you a Jew? You're going to Jerusalem? No way. You can't stay here. Sorry. No, you can't stay here. No, no. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked them, this is shocking, isn't it? Lord, do you want us to call fire from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> I mean, that's how we think when people are on the outside, isn't it? And that's how the Jews thought about Samaritans. What they really need is fire from heaven. Let's have some fire from heaven on that group, on that group, on that group. Jesus brings them right in and says, hmm. What will Jesus have this hated Samaritan do? You know the story, so you lose its tension, but let's try and imagine its tension as we get this landed. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to uh, where he was. That's the, the, the man who'd been robbed and, and, and naked and, and bleeding. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He had compassion. He went to him and bound up the wounds, pouring on oil and wine, set on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. The next day... He took out two weeks' wages and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever 
more you spend, I'll repay when you come back. Compassion. It's a huge, brilliantly word. You know, when, when the prodigal son's coming home, it says the father moved with compassion. When it talks about, about God, it says, I'll have compassion on who I have compassion. The Lord, gracious and compassionate. God's got compassion. Adele Cahoon says this, Christ is longing to touch this suffering world through the compassion of his church. And, and his apprentices are people of compassion. They know how to look for pain in the eyes of others. They know, how, know that labels don't help people change. I'll say that again. They know that labels don't help people change. They believe that love always has hands and feet. It is our choices that will reveal whether the church today becomes known as a wellspring of compassion or a place where no one cares. The Samaritan pours on oil and wine. It's antiseptic and ointment. It's healing and cleansing. It's, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's got images of, of, of wine and a poured out body. But, but what happens is the Samaritan then takes the guy, and you've got to understand, he takes a guy who's bleeding, a, probably a Jewish guy, takes him bleeding and takes him to, into the enemy camp. He carries his body into the enemy camp. That's a picture from, from Syria. But, but this, is a, this is an Afghani carrying a, a U.S. soldier into Camp Bastion. What are people going to think? You know, this is a jihadi carrying a... Oh, this is a Muslim, sorry, carrying a a victim of the London Bridge atrocity into the local hospital. It's crossing boundaries, radically crossing boundaries. He braves the enemy territory and says, take care of him. They're going to thought he's done it, aren't they? They're going to thought he's done it. They're going to thought he's the one to blame. He's the one. And then he gives them money. Money follows your heart. If you have compassion, your money follows there's a cost for compassion, but yet this guy says, I'm going to pay. And then he's not just a one-hit deal. He says, and when I return, he's coming back to check he's okay. It's amazing, isn't it? And they're all, and, and nearly landing now, but the, 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 the first century interpreters saw who as the Samaritan. Easy Sunday school answer. Who is the Samaritan in this story? It's not us. Jesus is a Samaritan in this story. Who's the naked, half-dead person? Us. Great. Let's just go through this quickly. Jesus is the outsider who enters our story, comes from heaven and enters a broken world, enters our story. He risks his life in the enemy camp. He's stripped and beaten. He pours out his oil, his blood, to save us. He pours out his wine to heal us. His costly love pays our debts. He will return for us. He places no limits on his love. After the story, Jesus says this, Who is my neighbor? 
that, that the lawyer can't even, make, can't even say Samaritan. He can't even say it because he says, the man who showed compassion on him. Jesus says, go and do likewise. The challenge of this story is that, that, we must, that, that, that we've all got walls, that we've all got ins and outs, that we've all got expressions and prejudices. You've probably seen some of mine. We've all got these things, and Jesus is saying it's time to pull them down. Not to pull them down in a way that says, just believe what you want and think what you want, but pull them down and say, everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome. And it's also to say that when we go out there, we to go out with our eyes open and not just walk by. And I'm challenged by this again, and even now I know the story that I can just walk by. I can just think it's too much trouble. Jesus didn't walk by. His body was broken. It cost him. Not just two weeks' wages, but his life. His, 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 his very self was poured out as his blood was poured out so that we can be invited. And we need, church, and I'll finish here, that we need the ch- power of Jesus to live like that Samaritan. This is what Tim, Steve Timmis says in a book about revolutionary neighbours. This can give you like an idea of how can you do this. It says, you're in and out of each other's lives throughout the week. It's not about a church community. Dropping in for lunch or tea. A number of you join a local book or film or sports or volunteer club. You drop off at a pub with some of your workmates. You call ahead and a couple of people from your gospel community join you. You frequent the same cafes and pubs together. You walk the dogs and water the plants and look after the kids and wash the dishes. He says, we are each other's sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, the kinds of friends and neighbours that everybody wants. You find yourself hanging out with others in your gospel community in ordinary everyday life and slowly but surely learning to pray and play and laugh and cry and sit and study and plan to engage with each other's friends. In other words, you're learning to do life on life on mission. What he's talking about there is how does this work itself out? He says we must take the walls down. That the, the way we do our small groups and the way we do life, we've got to take the walls down. And sometimes you get great windows into that. So we had a, a, a July the 4th uh, barbecue uh, at Paul and Molly's and our group said, I've been saying to other people, you just need to come and taste our community. You just need to be around. And none of them are like beaten or broken or naked, but basically that the, the we can just walk on by. But, 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 but the, the encouragement is to invite them in to see what it is like to have real radical community that really cares, that really stops and listens, that really makes a difference, that really pours out love and grace on people. Lord, we're shaken up by this story. The priests and the Levites that we are, the self-justifying lawyers that we so easily are, we're shaken up by this story. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would work on my heart.
that you'd work on our hearts, that we won't just walk on by, that we won't be just a nice self-selected group of people that feel tidily comfortable inside our perceptions of what's good. Lord, in a really radical way, prostitutes and sinners were gathering around you. Samaritans and Gentile ladies were drawn to you. Drawn to your grace and your gospel and your goodness and your poured out life and your gift of grace. So I just pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd tear down the little walls that we've got. The walls that make us too busy, inconvenience, that harden my heart, that harden our hearts. I pray we'd have the compassion that you've got. I pray that we would be revolutionary good neighbours to those in our school and workplace, our college and playgroup. Lord Jesus, I pray that we'd be radical boundary crossers with your grace. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.